0: Jordan is on best. Harper's on belt. They play together, they believe Um, If there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in.
1: Speed. Oh,
0: he's a one man wrecking
1: crew.
0: Holiday, shot clock down to six, finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. I'm excited for today's podcast. We finally have a a trade corner pod, which is outside of our (laughs) comfort zone.
0: Yes, normally it is. We're normally strictly here for analysis, but we we finally got a really great chance to to bring on a guest. We're joined by Jake Fisher from over at Bleacher Report. Uh, You definitely already know who Jake is. Uh, He's been doing some really great work. Um, really psyched to have him on, Jake. How are you doing today, man?
1: Doing well. Thank you for the kind introduction. We're uh, we're here to talk Pacers trading. Maybe everybody, maybe nobody. It's, uh, Please it's, just
0: be somebody. I, yes, we're at we're yeah, at that I, point.
1: I, I, I feel like you know the, the Magic. Until last year, we're kind of this team that we're always potentially rebuilding, potentially pulling the plug, potentially doing this, and it seems like the Pacers are now the next up. And maybe this is their time to really actually shuffle the deck here.
0: Definitely. Well, Caitlin, I know you wanted to get us started. Um, Where do you want to start up here?
2: Right. So I feel kind of bad because I wanted to have you on the podcast clear back last year, but I was like, we're going to be inviting him into enemy territory. I don't know if I want to do that to him. So um, I don't know how many of our listeners know, but I was on your halftime app show. I don't know, like a couple months ago now, but the Pacers feel like they've been in the same spot since Mm -hmm. then. So Um, When you were on there, something you said really stuck with me, which was that you're reporting last year on Nate Bjorkman, that that wasn't a story you wanted to write. So just for our uh, listener base here, what did you mean by that? And what were you noticing that kind of compelled you to feel like you needed to write that story?
1: So that was around the deadline. I think I first started hearing stuff about, I mean, there was all this talk and some bonuses people denied it. Very, very adamantly, that he wanted out around the deadline, right? I'm sure you guys remember those rumors. And I remember they were pretty clearly rooted, that the rumors of him wanting out were clearly rooted back to some general dissatisfaction with Nate. And I mean, you guys know as well as anyone the tone that. Domas and Malcolm and pretty much everyone else was kind of singing or the tune. I'm I'm blowing the metaphor already, but um, you know from the from the preseason they were calling Nate a genius and their offensive savior like that 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 tone shifted pretty quickly, Um, and then when it seemed like he was going to ultimately be fired, like there was starting to be a lot of rumblings, and then I was I started making calls, probably a couple weeks after the deadline because like right now when i'm when i'm calling people this week and in the next couple of weeks trying to get stuff on this deadline like i'm there's there's not like we got a couple weeks here before that that buzzer sounds on february 10th and then there's kind of a dearth of actual like news pegs on the calendar between now then and for agency right so i'm already starting to jot down for agency type ideas you know coaching change for an office change type stuff doesn't have these conversations and the nate stuff kept popping up and i didn't want to be the person to say just like when gerson rosas gets fired um a couple months after nate um you know the real final straw that broke that camel's back was finding out what was ownership finding out about an extramarital affair that gerson was having and i didn't want to write that either you know like i, I got into this business to cover the nba but at a certain point when like the true story isn't being told necessarily, and it's something that is moving wheels behind the scenes or levers are being pulled behind the scenes that aren't accidentally being brought to fans attention. Like I think it's my job and it's only fair to bring forward the actual motivations and the things that are bubbling up to the surface and, and and why they're impacting a press release or a decision that, We don't really typically get a real answer for. So, I don't know if that was a ramble or a good answer to your question. No, it
2: definitely does. I mean, I think up until that point, until I had read your story, a lot of it was kind of being couched in just, you know, very vague human Mm -hmm. management terms, leadership style terms, until you had kind of put some details behind it. But just kind of generally speaking, how does the genesis of a story like that kind of develop? Is that a case of you like, kind of hearing some of these things around the league and then doing some background with prior teams and and some of his G League stops and then you go to the Pacers or was there uh, people with the Pacers since you had quotes from various sources there? Or is that kind of a case of, you know, you heard somewhat from whistleblowers there and then you went around and did background?
1: I think I'd say 98% of the time, when I write a story about any team, the first nugget, the first tidbit that I get is not from that team. Right. And then, you know, when I started covering the transactional side of things for Bleacher Report, um, I believe it was January of last year, 2020, all the time is now messed up with all the pandemic stuff, but whenever it happened, like I was freelancing and doing the fun human interests type stories that I was doing at SI that allowed me to make a lot of the connections that I have in the league, because I was, I was writing fun stories, like going to get coffee with Mike D'Antoni because he's obsessed with Starbucks, you know? And that was like a good way to meet a lot of people in the league went to talk about things that weren't exactly high stakes, like James Harden potentially wanting to bail on Brooklyn to go to Philly. So when a Bleacher asked me to, to potentially do this role, like I called 10, 15 people in the league and said like, is it cool can i like i know we got a relationship here but can i call you every week to be like my basis of what's happening in the league so when when things start to being echoed by those people then i start to then talk to agents of players who represent that team or or uh like let's say you know pretty much every top executive has come from another team right so if you want to talk about The Sixers, you know, there's a lot of ties from people who have worked with Daryl Morey in the past, you know, and then you get as much info as you can before you then start bringing it to people who are on the ground, because you want to me I always want to feel prepared, being that, especially if it's a sensitive topic, people aren't going to want to talk about it. And if you present it to them, from my perspective and my experience of saying, this is all the work I've done. I'm really just trying to tell the story as honestly as I can and include all the perspectives that are involved here. Yours is obviously one of them. You know, I just want to give you the opportunity to to share that and I think it would make my story better and it would make everyone, you know, it would would do everyone else better off. A lot of people do say no, like there was someone with Indy that I asked to talk to for that story who who declined. Um, There are definitely a lot of people who wanted to talk um, and obviously everyone wanted to be anonymous um but i think if you show people involved with the situation that you've done the groundwork and that you don't have an agenda you're just like bringing to the facts at play um usually people are willing at least to respond or comment or give you some type of context like you know someone i called with james harden's you know camp let's say for this story that came out today like they didn't want me to write the story that came out today but when i said i'm writing it like i just want to do right by you guys and kind of make sure i'm accurate here and cross my t's and dot my i's like they were on board to kind of give some intel obviously so um that's always been my approach
2: yeah i'm gonna spare you any of the conspiracy theories on how i <laughs> <laughs> how all of that was sourced but if we fast forward a little bit obviously Nate Yorkin gets let go after one year and because you are so well connected what was kind of the response around the nba when Rick Carlisle was hired? I mean, obviously the Pacers cited his championship pedigree, his multi-year experience in the aftermath of having a rookie head coach. What was kind of the reaction to that based on, you know, micromanaging can mean a lot of different things. And I think it is separate from what Nate Bjorkren's style was versus, you know, Rick Carlisle having a reputation for being a play caller. But what was kind of that reaction?
1: Yeah, I mean, the obvious connections to him and the franchise were there. Um, And I mean, the first reaction definitely was, Terry Stotts seemed to have the inside track at that job. Um, And there was a lot of talk in the league where, you know, the Pacers didn't fire Nate Bjorkman until after Terry Stotts was on the market. And there's typically, I mean, it's just good business practice, right? Where you've got somebody in a very prominent job, very high paying job, very public facing job that represents your organization on a day-to-day basis in front of the media, like, it's pretty tough to move on from that guy without having a pretty good idea of at least an option that you have. So when like, in fact, connect all his dots together, like it seemed like Terry Stott's job to lose. And when the Rick stuff in Dallas kind of blew up the whole Haral Bob dynamic, his name started to um, percolate in Indiana also because Rick was really linked to Milwaukee last year, right? If you guys remember that Um, and Mike Budenholzer was – absolutely on the hot seat prior to that championship run and we talk about like the Kevin Durant uh heel being or toe being on the three-point line as being the sliding doors moment for the Bucs and the Nets franchises but like on a human level like that saved Mike Budenholz's job and he got a contract extension and it took an opening off the table and we also saw there's a obviously a concerted effort in the head coaching market last year to hire a lot of African-American coaches, like it's just, it is what it is. And I mean, that's, that's great for the league also, right? Like a lot of players have been vouching for that. And I think it's, it's a clear, it was a clear necessary adjustment that had to kind of re- regress or progress back to the mean, whenever the correct uh version of that expression would be here. So with Indy, like the, the only, they, they were, they stood out compared to every other opening as the fact that they clearly wanted someone who had had, had coaching experience before and pretty much all of those hot young names of, of young African-American coaches were all first-time head coaches, right? Chauncey Billups in Portland, Jamal Mosley in Orlando, Wes Unseld, um, Ime Doka, you go down the list. Um, so that was also a standout thing, too, that, like, Indy clearly after the Nate situation, they, they had signaled pretty widely, it sounded like, at least from my perspective, that they were not going to be going after a rookie head coach and they wanted somebody, um who had been there before who could command the locker room and could take this team finally and maybe be that one last missing ingredient to get them back into being a legitimate Eastern Conference threat. So um, again, I've rambled really far here, but I think that answers your question too.
2: (laughs) No, it definitely does. I mean, I think that you and I kind of talked a little bit. It was ahead of when I believe the athletic report came out saying that the Pacers were going to perhaps pivot to a rebuild and and I believe that you had asked me like you know do you see that that's something that the Pacers would do and that you had kind of heard it a little bit differently in part because they had hired Rick Carlisle and they had drafted you know Chris Duarte so kind of how much do you see that or what are you hearing with regards to you know how far the Pacers going to be wanting to strip this back given that they did hire a coach who um, is earning 7 million dollars annually or maybe you know maybe Rick Carlisle's changed his opinion on that based on what he's getting out of this roster.
1: Yeah. I mean hiring Rick Carlisle is clearly a move like we just talked about towards trying to um trying to take a next step in the postseason echelon and I think Herb Simon as you guys know, I mean ownership has never ever ever been too enthused about the idea of not competing for the postseason and Also, I mean, the Pacers draft record really hasn't been that sterling either, right? Like, Duarte is a really successful pick. um, And he's someone, yeah, that I think is is pretty much considered untouchable by the Pacers right now. But I think the front office, and just like Orlando, to to bring that that comparison again, I mean, the Magic took that front office group is a little bit different from – uh Pritchard and Buchanan being that um you know they came in and took over kind of the scraps of Rob Hennigan's tenure and they tried to put some lipstick on that pig and make a playoff run and they never really emerged out of that eight seed spot and And the rebuild was the clear opportunity to extend their lifeline as a front office in Orlando and they they all signed contract extensions deep into this decade now and they're being patient and they hired the player development specialist Jamal Moseley, and Jamal Mosley and that was hunky dory in Orlando right Like in Indiana, I think that is what the front office would like to do. I think they would. I mean, that's from everything I've heard, seems very clear that the front office would love to try to rebuild and try to patiently, you know, grow this thing back up from the ground. But yeah, I don't think Rick has any designs on doing that. Everything I've been told is that the coaching staff has really no interest in keeping Sabonis and Miles Turner together. I think it's 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 been a very um, not head scratching, but uh, just uh, not advantageous situation for them. I don't think they love playing the two bigs together. Um, and I, I mean, they're, they're clearly open for business for everyone from Turner to Karis Levert to Justin Holliday, to Torrey Craig, to Jeremy Lamb. Um, Sabonis I I think is probably the least available of all the non Duarte Isaiah Jackson guys. Um, but I, I think they're still also very fluid here, being that Miles Turner's injury has not only thrown a whole monkey wrench into Indiana's plans, but he was a big domino that I think a lot of executives around the league were kind of counting on maybe falling early ahead of the deadline, maybe coming in this week or next week. Not saying that um, it was going to happen, but there's a lot of buzz with Portland. There is buzz with Toronto. There is buzz with Dallas, Charlotte, New York. Like there are a lot of teams that were circling him. And I've heard some teams have backed off now, and you now the Pacers are going to have to ask for a lower price, being that we don't know when he's going to come back, because people don't know when he's going to come back. So that's kind of the the, the the present state overall, I guess I could say, um, on my read on, on where Indy stands right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, on the Turner front, I know that, I mean, obviously it was before Miles had um, been diagnosed with the stress reaction that you had written, I think a couple of weeks ago, that he was the most likely player on the roster to be moved. And I want to get Mark in here too, because you've also talked before about, you know, the Pacers and the Blazers kind of being natural trade partners, perhaps. And Portland, I think, is kind of the one team that you could kind of circle and maybe see like the concept of the one-year tank, where maybe you're still willing to get in on Turner because of Damian Lillard, can't come back and play, then you are upgrading that position. And hey, if Miles is injured and can't necessarily play right away, that's not really contrary maybe to what your goals are for the season. I don't know where you think about that, Mark, or kind of what you want to build off of and ask from that.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Uh, One of the things I want to piggyback off that as well, like we were talking about, um, you know, looking at you know, where this front office wants to go. And uh, it, it seems to, I think it was Bob Kravitz and Josh Robbins had a report over this morning at, at The Athletic, basically backing up, you know, what they released a month ago from Herb Simon's press conference. Like, he still wants them to be competitive as all hell. Um, you know, the usual that we get from Herb. Um, wh- I mean, what do you make of this disconnect between the front office and, 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 the, and ownership? Because it is, like, I mean, very clearly it has been for, the last year or two, especially. I think it was uh two years ago when when KP was mentioned as, you know, looking into or wanting to rebuild the team. But, um I mean, where what, what are your thoughts at on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think the paces are they kind of blending together with Caitlin said too. Like, they're, they're in this interesting opportunity where they've got pieces that other teams definitely would want. Same with Portland, right, where they, car, they kind of are straddling that line. And a lot of teams are being that, The playing tournament in general has just dramatically changed the landscape of the NBA, not just on a day-to-day transactional level right now where, you know, teams are kind of debating whether or not they're a seller or a buyer, how much they should be going in to buy or how much they should be going in to sell, but also the overall expectation like for New Orleans or Indiana or, you know, even Herb's playoff kind of not mandate, but obvious Um, goal he he wants to be a postseason team like does making the plan tournament now all of a sudden you know count for being for making the postseason quote unquote for certain teams it will um for the for the kings for example to make the plan tournament like that's going to be a big win for them as you guys just saw last year making the plan tournament and losing and being out doesn't really do too much uh for you know the average franchise has had a bunch of playoff appearances, but it can, it can, it can save some jobs in other situations. So um, with the Pacers here, like, I, I think it's just interesting, like with them versus Portland, for example, the Blazers are are doing everything they can. Like they're North stars to keep Damian Lillard and to keep him happy and to keep a building uh, a winning team around him. The Pacers as, as good as Sabonis is, as good as Turner is like, they don't have that guy. They don't have that Kevin Durant who they're doing everything behind the scenes to make sure he's happy, um, which is, is, I mean, you look at what's happening around the league in this, this current player empowerment era, like maybe that's a good thing, honestly, um, in terms of not mortgaging all your assets to, to lock your roster into three $35 million players. And then you have Russell Westbrook and you're, you're locked into flexibility and don't can't upgrade your roster. You know maybe that, maybe, that, maybe that is a good thing for the Pacers where they do have this flexibility to, kind of middle build or swap out some pieces or, you know, they could sell or they could buy, you know know what I'm saying? And I think that, that, that opportunity and that, um, that, that flexibility that they do face is why they're kind of in this inflection point where there's different factors and different actors who want to do different things because they are kind of a good team with good pieces that is just um, before performing below, below expectations, but also still kind of is, like convincing themselves based off of the playing tournament that we are still kind of close.
0: Yeah. Um. An, another thing going off that as well. Um. Before we talk a little bit more specifically about Miles, um. The Pacers and especially, I mean, Kevin Pritchard. I, I think every press conference he's done in the last three years always mentions that the Pacers have an open door trade policy. So if a guy on the team is 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 in trade talks, they're going to tell them. Um. And I used to think, uh, that that was maybe a good thing, or that there was a you know, some, some nobility in that. And not that I think that there's necessarily a right answer with it, but it definitely seems to have gotten to the point where it has soured Um, with how it's impacted the roster. Like, I mean, clearly miles has been in trade talks for four or five years now, pretty much since he's, since he's been a pacer. Um, and I just wonder what the perception of that is around the league, or if that's a normal thing, because I mean, like, I just, just like very, night, night and day, I remember, seeing Harrison Barnes get traded in the middle of a game and him not knowing. um, It doesn't seem like it's the usual around the league, but I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that.
1: I think every team operates differently. And, you know, there are certain teams who will say, I don't want to ever make a trade without calling that player and that player's agent and letting them know they're involved. But then a lot of agents got big mouths, right? And they'll tell someone like me or they'll tell another team, they'll tell another reporter, um, and then the word gets out, like, there was definitely a deal, I forget what it was, um, because it just all the years blend together, but there was yep. definitely a deal I remember reporting on about Detroit and New Orleans. Um, this was back during the Dell Demps years, and uh, the piston, and I think the Pelicans leaked it or the Pistons leaked it. And I hate saying that because I hate providing Twitter people more uh, authority to question where things are getting leaked to, because like. <laughs> The majority of my stuff doesn't get leaked, guys. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm fighting against the leaks to try to bring the story because they're not coming my way. But sometimes, I mean, sometimes, a lot of times, stuff does get leaked, right? And like the, that deal, this this Pistons Pelicans deal I'm talking about that happened again, like sometime four years ago, it fell apart because the Pelicans leaked it or the Pistons leaked it one side or the other. I forget, and the other team was like, "Screw you guys, we're not doing this deal anymore." Um, so, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of humans involved in this and a lot of the humans also don't recognize that there are humans being traded and their lives uprooted. So all those, um, the human element there, like it's just, it's an imperfect science and every team does it differently. And I think that's why this is such a chaotic period because you have agents who are trying to steer their guys to certain situations or they're just trying to make sure their guys stay in a good situation or teams are doing things to try to set themselves up for this year, but also for free agency. And then next year's free. Like there's just so many different moving parts. Uh, So everyone does kind of have a different approach to it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that's kind of curious with the Pacers on that question from Mark is that last year felt like a very clear data point point in that they never really provide a pecking order publicly on how they see their top five players or mm-hmm. if they even think they have a best player like that never comes out from the front office or the coaching staff in interviews. So when yeah. miles Turner is greatly linked to Gordon Hayward to the point where that kind of looks like it's going to get done. And they said that they talked to miles about it. And now he kind of feels like, and knows, Hey, I was the one of the two bigs that was going to get moved. And now, like even right now, I mean, I've seen from several outlets, you've mentioned that like, you know, the Pacers asking price for miles is two first round picks. And, you know, for Karis, first round pick in a young player, whereas there's other people who have now reported that, hey, the asking price for Sabonis is hefty. Like that's an all-star. That's them, you know, really wanting a lot in return there. They've like Miles then again knows they're valuing Sabonis, at least on the trade market more than that they are valuing me, which I don't necessarily disagree with. I think that of the two like cards on the table, I think Sabonis is the better player, but when you are upfront and honest, like, you know, I would want people to be honest with me. I think I would rather have my, you know, GM tell me that rather than read it on Twitter, but like the cards are on the table. Like these guys have to be seeing what's out there. I mean, even every single guy has been mentioned with regards to Ben Simmons, almost with the exception of Malcolm Brogdon. So Mm
1: -hmm yeah and at a certain point also like i remember when i was working on my book um dwight powell is not the biggest star and doesn't make the most money right but i think he's making like nine million dollars now he got traded i think four times before his rookie year even started and he was three i remember he was in boston and first got drafted in cleveland and was in boston and then went to uh went to dallas in the rajon rondo deal and i remember asking him about like how tough it was and he said to me so, like his agent told him from the get-go, you know, you get paid a lot of this money partially for the ability to be able to pick up and move. Um, so, like, that is part of it. And I do think, while it does suck, and I'm certainly sympathetic and empathetic to the concept of, like, you might be moved, you might not. You might have to go find a new city for your, your kids to live in or a new school district research you got to do. Or maybe you're going to move to a new city on your own and your wife and kids are going to stay behind. And you're going to have to like live like a detached family for a couple of months. Like I get that. That's awful. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty brutal part of the job, but you are compensated as such. And I think at the end of the day, like it's such a cliche that we hear people say over and over and over again, it's a business, but that's the easiest way I think to communicate sometimes how, how, how you can just survive in in, in the NBA, like on our side of things, as an agent, as a coach, as an executive, like it's a business, right? You can't take anything too personally because at the end of the day, this is a multi multi multi-billion dollar machine that even from us up to LeBron to Adam Silver, to any, anyone who just collects a paycheck and has some type of voice or platform in this industry, like we all have a part in it. Um, and if you just understand what your part is and what um what what, what weight you can swing like it's just kind of, i think accepting that you can get traded if you're not one of those top guys it's just part of the gig and i think it's it's a matter of perspective and people in their ear trying to help them understand that cuz it can be tough um but i i feel like miles has a good has gone about it the right way from my perspective i, I think he seems to be aware that he's on the block. I think he seems to be open to new opportunities. Um, And he seems to be val- Like, I, th- I think he's a guy who would get dealt and would be motivated by the opportunity and look at it as like this team that traded for me wants me versus the Pacers didn't want me.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously he's been out there in terms of, I mean, he's termed it as role clarity, but wanting yeah. to be able to do more and where that opportunity, you know, may or may not be. It's just, It's just curious that they always, like I said, they they publicly, they don't really say a lot about, you know, like, oh, you know, Sabonis is a two time all star. I mean, even to the point we're having a quote in that article where they where Miles talked about his role and saying, which Kevin Pritchard has since qualified, that he was more saying like, well, we need a guy who's going to help us close games. But, you know, that they don't necessarily have a star. And then in return, you know, they're seeking an all star for Sabonis. So that seems like, you know a slight bit of a disconnect, but just to kind of hop in, you know, you mentioned that the Pacers are, are managing a lot of different directions they could go in. And that's kind of even reflected in your reporting. Cause it seems like, you know, for miles and Karis, they're looking at maybe picks and young players, and they're also gauging the market for, as you said, Torrey Craig, Jeremy Lamb, Justin Holiday. but then you did have them mentioned as a potential suitor for Jeremy Grant in your wider piece about Jeremy Grant. So is that just what that is that they could, they could be buyers. They could be sellers. Is, is that kind of where their thinking seems to be?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think all those teams like Portland and Sacramento and New Orleans and Indy, like I think they're all have opportunities to kind of do like mini upgrades, like to go get Jeremy, but also like the Jeremy Miles market is just so um not congested, but it's like a it's like a um a Venn diagram where like a lot of teams run on both those guys, and I think just naturally. Like, if that's the case, I think the market has just kind of pushed Indy and Detroit together, too, to kind of be like, well, these are the two guys who are, you know, the most, like, frontcourt available players. So maybe there's a, just just like with Portland and Indy, like, maybe there's a swap that just benefits both sides, um, that type of stuff. So I don't think they're, like, aggressively pursuing Jeremy Grant. Like, the Pacers have never been characterized to me. As one of the teams that's like actively trying to go hunt and get Jeremy Grant, like Utah and the Lakers and um, uh, Atlanta right now have been, and lesser extent, Sacramento and Portland have been like just continuing to get brought up as chasing Jeremy Grant. And like Indy and Sacramento and, and not Sacramento, um, Minnesota and New York, like they're more about just like in the mix teams that have called, teams that are looking to buy, they don't know how much they're willing to spend. I think everyone's just kind of uh, – it's a bit of a staring contest right now in, in terms of that 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 tier behind Ben Simmons, if you will, the Domas, Miles, Jeremy Grant, the, even incorporate CJ McCollum and Norm Powell in there. Like, those those tier type of players, I think the market's kind of just waiting to see which, which is the first domino to fall.
2: Are you definitely under the impression that, like – I know some fans want this – Um, that the Pacers would trade both miles and Sabonis, or are you under the impression that this is an either, or, that one of them's going to get moved and it's going to do like a half mini rebuild and see what they can do from there.
1: I'd be surprised if it's both. Definitely. Um, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, if they find some type of deal where they're able to give a lot of financial flexibility and like they can sell it as we can recruit some value of young guys who are going to build us moving forward, but also still compete, like, like not take themselves out. Like if they can make a move that is more of a rebuild, but they're not like out of the playoff picture for four years, like Orlando is, if it's a one-year type thing, like you were talking about Portland or how Toronto did it last year, but they can get some pieces that, you know, they're excited about that they can add to the Duarte Isaiah Jackson collection, uh, not to be too gross and acidy vo- uh, vocabulary, but um, I think they'd be open to it. But, yeah, I- I'd be pretty surprised if both of those guys got those.
2: I mean, how much is some of this like a holding pattern mainly because of Ben Simmons? Because if you even look at some of Miles's market um, and teams that have been mentioned, like that's Minnesota – you know, uh what other teams have been interested in Miles that might also be waiting out Ben Simmons. Like, you know, if, if that's the first player that they want, they kind of need to know, like, okay, we're totally out on that. So now we can pivot to what yeah. our other options were. Is that a lot of it right now? Cause I see all the time that fans are frustrated and thinking that like I don't know what the impression is. It's like they think that the front office just doesn't do anything all day. And I think it's more so, you know, that domino kind of needs to fall first if he's going to get moved or if they're going to wait until the end of the deadline or past yeah. the deadline i mean
1: yeah i think every transaction window is like that like last summer was kind of the point guard carousel like kyle larry people you know dallas and miami and new orleans um and philly were all involved and like even there to, to take your point here like the kyle larry situation with philly was hanging over the ben simmons trade conversations right Um, And then once Kyle Lyder goes off the board, then like people are scrambling for Lonzo. And then when Lonzo's off the board, people are scrambling for Spencer Dinwiddie. Like that is kind of, it it just, I always come back to fantasy football because that's like the most layman analogy I can think of. If you're in a draft and all of a sudden there's a quarterback run, like you're going to probably want to go get a quarterback, right? So in, in this current market, yeah, like the teams that are in on Ben Simmons, like certainly think that there's still a shot at getting him while recognizing there's this massive doubt being that the Sixers have this James Harden situation lingering over at all. It's not guaranteed, but he's clearly sending messages and signals that he'd be open to it. Um, And like, if that's something that they know, um, that they know they, they have a, a strong chance at in their back pocket, like there's also Bradley Beal hanging over everything and, you know the the wizards after nine and two or nine and three start whatever it was, you know, they're down in, in the playing throws of it as well. So I think those teams are absolutely holding out hope that they can go get Ben. It seems like Sacramento and Atlanta right now are the two that would be, you know, that are that are the most active, the most engaged with Philly on that. Um and yeah, both those teams are involved in Jeremy Grant as well and Sacramento with Miles Turner. So like uh, yeah, the Ben Domino is the one that's going to hold Everything up for a bit here, I think, and um, maybe as we get closer, when they start to realize, I mean, there there could be a time where Philly just says, "Give us your final offers. If you don't, if you don't beat it, we're out. We're holding them, and then we start to see some movement." But that might not happen till Tuesday before the deadline, you know. So um, it's going to be slow and quiet, I think, until we have reason to believe that one of those bigger pieces will actually be on the move.
2: So wait, what you're telling me is we don't need to record any more segments about the Pacers and Ben Simmons? Like we can move on from that topic?
1: I would, I would, yeah. I mean, I'd be floored. It would have to like, it have to be at least a three-team deal, maybe even like a four-team trade to get that to be done. So, um, or, you know, Tobias has to go out. Like that's like, there's just a lot of pieces that need to move and need to get completed for that to happen, yeah.
2: Yeah, that that was a fun time over the weekend wasn't it mark where trades Great were being time.
0: proposed yeah. with i just kind of turned off my mentions for a little bit after uh, normally re- replying to everybody i was like you know we've done this six times already i don't have to do it again but um caitlin unless you have anything else i think uh jake this has been absolutely awesome man um caitlin did did you have you anything else you
1: want to hit on
2: no i mean i could ask him questions for hours <laughs> i mean that is, makes me his, too but his, his I, time is I'm very valuable a half an hour. um my Jake.
1: time is not more valuable than you guys. I just have other things booked later today. So.
0: <laughs> Much appreciated, man. Well, is there anything that you want to plug before you get out here?
1: Yeah, I'm still uh, – I got a book that came out last May. It came out the same day that I wrote the Nate article. So if that's any uh, connection. I forgot
0: to- that was yeah. the same day. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: It's called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking era Change League Forever. Uh, still on Amazon, bookshop.org, wherever you want to get your book. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, my buddy Chris Herring and Seth Part now they write books too. Support support books, man. It'll uh, or or women or dude or whatever you identify, buy some books. Uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll they'll take you out of the Seth pool of Twitter. And uh, these people work very hard on their projects, and they don't cost that much. So that's my that's my that's my spiel.
0: I have to recommend it. I just started reading Blood in the Garden last night from Chris. So I uh, definitely recommend it. I wrote like a 10 page article is the longest thing I've written this year. And then I, I look at a book. and I'm like, I have no idea how you even get started with this. So major props, man. If you guys aren't already, of course, go follow Jake on Twitter. I'll have a link down below. Thank you again, man. We appreciate you having coming on.
1: You got it. Take care guys.
0: See ya. So, Caitlin and I are still going. Um, We are coming at you after the uh, conclusion of talking with Jake. Uh, Caitlin, I know we have some takeaways. What do you want to dive into first from that? First, I mean, Jake was awesome. Uh, I'd never heard him on a podcast before, so it was cool to chop it up with him live after reading him for a while.
2: Yes, super special thanks to him for coming on. And also, if people don't already, they can download the Halftime app, and he does conversations like that. Um, every Tuesday and Thursday, at I think four o'clock, which is why he had to jet because he does that at four and, and he kind of covers the rest of the league and has guests on sometimes like when I was on earlier. So yeah, that was, that was definitely interesting conversation. And I think the part that I took away, maybe most was piggybacking off of your question that you asked him about, you know, is there a potential disconnect on what direction the team might want to go and subsequent reporting this morning from Bob Kravitz at the athletic that Herb Simon doesn't sound like he's necessarily changed his opinion on what trajectory he would want the team to go on and also just the overall concept that it seems like the Pacers themselves are still just weighing a lot of possibilities with two weeks to the trade deadline about you know are we searching for players and picks or are we searching for players who can help us now so I don't know what your thoughts on all that were
0: it's uh it's interesting because I think uh you know when we were talking last week and I made you uh I made you power rank six things that you did not want to power rank Um, I almost put a seventh, which was clarity. Um, like what things that the pacers most need, and I think our conversation with Jake just made that even more um more more abundantly clear to me. Like, um, basically, it seems like on everything, not just from Jake's reporting, but but just reporting in general, like um the front office and Herb Simon and Rick Carlisle are all coming at this from different angles, and that's just uh it's a little bit problematic in terms of actually figuring out what the direction is. And I mean, hopefully we'll have a better answer by the 10th. I mean, getting some more, again, more clarity with the Ben Simmons situation. I never really thought that um, Indiana was going to be a super real contender for it, but it's interesting to hear more about that. Um, I I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't entirely know where to uh, where to fall on it. Um, It's definitely, uh, I mean, it seems more and more, possible that uh, a little bit more of a rebuild could happen, but I don't know. I mean, did anything change up for you after listening to that?
2: No, I mean, in part, like if we go back in time to before that initial athletic report came out where it was worded, as a rebuild and like the promotional tweet, I think that most people that follow the Pacers probably expected that what Herb Simon's position is, is what it currently is. Mm-hmm. I also don't necessarily blame them because like for you and I to sit here and talk about the team, it can be kind of difficult because how do we assess what they're doing if we don't know, you know what they're hoping to be? I mean, mm-hmm. you and I have talked about that a lot, but at the same time, I think that we will have a better picture of that on February 11th or at the very least by the end of the season where it's going to be abundantly clear, okay, you know, they traded Miles and Levert for first round picks or, you know, a young prospect and it's going to be easier to see what direction they're going and in part, like there were times like it's it's somewhat of an internal conflict because being in media, you want, you know, everyone to talk as much as possible and to see you know, what they're thinking is. So you have a bigger picture, but there were times where I was like, you know, maybe if everyone stopped talking and they just reacted and just explained what they did in the aftermath, like some of the constant, like, look how many sound bites there's been from this season of, you know, I love this little team and manufacture that real star. And this ain't P like there's a million things that people on Twitter bring up every day that like, if they just like explained, okay, we traded, sabonis so for x or we traded miles for x because this is where we see our team is at and this is where we want to get to in next year or in the next couple of years or this is you know we didn't at the end of the season we didn't trade anybody or you know we're doing this mini rebuild and they just explained it afterwards i think maybe some of this wouldn't have gotten like i don't want to necessarily say it's been blown out of proportion but like what the reaction has been from fans may not have been as intense
0: yeah no a thousand percent like even just going through and reading herb's uh quotes like as much as i i know uh some people were like you know that's just that's his age like those are his mannerisms i'm like at the same point okay when you're that old you should know the stuff that i say is going to get aggregated That's what people are going to read so i'm less lenient with that and i think too um like in, in seeing all of what he said i do think there was it, it was it was not as bad as I think that quote made it out to be, but again, yeah. like more so, just that he still is coming from a place where he's, um, not seeing this necessarily as a team that needs to rebuild is where you go like I you know I just don't know what to make of that, but again, like you're saying, okay, well if the front office or Herb or the players or anybody just came out and said what they actually meant then we wouldn't have to speculate and there wouldn't be like, I'm sure people still would to a degree, but like, okay, if we can literally ask them the question say, what do you view as the future and direction of this team? And we got a clear cut answer. That makes it a hell of a lot easier to grade out what they're doing right now.
2: No, that, that, that's fair. And I agree with you. Like when you read the entirety of what Herb Simon said, rather than like, the tiny sentences I, I it sounded to me that he was he was open to trades and that they were going to see how competitive the team went as the season went on and and you know his overall stance on tanking has kind of always been his overall stance on tanking which is i think is why he wanted to do that interview but um yeah Clare, clarity probably would have made it pretty high up the rankings and hopefully that's something that that we get in the in the near term future. But I mean, some of it probably too is kind of like when you go into a draft. I mean, you have to model tons of different scenarios for, you know, if this team takes that player, what what response are we going to have there? If we think we can make a trade and move up, like you're having to do a lot of different things, which is probably why we're seeing a lot of different pathways from various markets or, you know, NBA insiders sharing, you know. Di- seemingly different directions just like I asked Jake like to me it's a very different direction to be pursuing Jeremy Grant it doesn't sound like the Pacers are like one of the you know leaders in that pursuit but to have that as an idea or you know to be going after and I'm just definitely picking a name out of the air this is not sourced reporting like to be going after somebody like Pascal Siakam versus you know making like the Aaron Gordon deal with regards to Miles Turner where you might look for a first round pick get a young player and get expiring money like those are two very different directions but maybe in their in their defense because of what the market is and waiting for that ben simmons domino you don't know what teams are going to be willing to move and which ones aren't so um, that's kind of understandable and obviously they're not going to come out to a table tomorrow kevin pritchard isn't going to sit there and be like hey our plan is to trade so-and-so for X, you know, so I'm kind of understandable to that, but I do because we've had this segment so many times, I think we can close out Ben Simmons corner. So, so over the weekend, um, Bobby Marks was on ESPN and in defense of Bobby Marks, he said he was doing a segment on who the best player available that the Sixers could get in return was. And his suggested trade was that the Pacers would get Ben Simmons and the Pacers would be trading Sabonis, Karis LeVert, and two unprotected first-round picks, one being, I believe, in 2024, and one being their pick from this year, which you know could potentially be top five, top six. So, first of all, what was your reaction when you saw that graphic? <laughs> and how glad are you going to be to be done talking about this?
0: Well, yeah, uh, my first reaction was like, what does that do for – I mean, like, I guess uh, – <laughs> I don't know. I think you and I were both in the same place of like, I don't think that necessarily makes sense for Indiana, but I was looking at it more too. Like, first of all, that does absolutely nothing for for the Sixers. Like, I love Sabonis, and I think Karis in the right environment can be a good player. Um, But like, that's a, that is so much to give up. Like, Ben is a good player, don't get me wrong, but like, okay, what do you have left if Ben is there? Um, cause it isn't shooting as we've talked about. It is not shooting. This is not, this is a non-shooting team currently. I think they're shooting 33% from three right now. Um, so it's not exactly like you're just going to have Ben Simmons with, you know, running the break and having a bunch of cutters and, and guys you can shoot off of him. Like that's, that's not how it's going to work. Um, so yes, I was very perplexed by that. I, I thought in terms of just looking at sheer value, Philadelphia was, uh, was making out fairly well on that. Um, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense on court.
2: Yeah, I mean, the fit the fit is obviously iffy for the Sixers, but in their case, like, you know, they've lost the the Joel Embiid minutes when he's off the court in the past. I think that there are probably some things that you could do. I don't think it would be a long-term thing, but, you know, Sabonis is 25 years old. He's a two-time all-star. You you get him, you flip him, and you also have a top five pick plus Karras and a whole nother pick, neither of which are protected. Like, that seems like tremendous value for the Pacers to be giving up. And in addition to that, like and I asked this question and somebody got mad at me, but like for what reason would the Pacers in that scenario have to believe that they would be better than the Sixers were with Ben Simmons? Yeah. Like why why would the Pacers be better than Philadelphia was with Joel Embiid? And they're like, well they wouldn't. They don't have Joel Embiid, who's an MVP candidate. Exactly. Like that's the point. And they don't have, they wouldn't have a means to get somebody that caliber at that point if they had also given up their picks and and other assets. So what's interesting is if if this question had been posed to me. And, and maybe your reaction would be different as well. Like if, if I had asked you last December or January, Hey, you know, do you think the Pacers should pursue Ben Simmons? I think my opinion would have been polar opposite because like, if you look at it, first of all, I haven't seen an extra year of, of the Pacers and they were not shooting the ball this poorly last year. And at least had, you know, dog as an additional movement shooter, but
0: not with the dogs for, killing it in San yeah. Antonio. Yeah.
2: For for all of Nate Bjorkren's warts, like Ben Simmons makes a lot of sense in that system. Like, mm-hmm. I think somebody even asked me about Ben last year, and I was like, yeah, that'd probably make sense because you know, being in that aggro defense while also offensively, I think some of that would have fit better. Like, I was just always having trouble imagining, like, and these are not identical players, but like Rick Carlisle coaching supercharged Rajon Rondo. Like, and given, great, but... well, and given how that win in Dallas, like just trying mm-hmm. to imagine that. And then, like I mentioned, when we were talking to Jake, like this idea, and it, it is not me trying to um, question what Kevin Pritchard's point was. Like I understood his point in the article and am not even necessarily arguing with it, but he did qualify on Twitter and say like, Hey, you know, I was interviewed for a very long time and it, I star, I wish I wouldn't have used that word. I, I think we need more guys to help us in closing time. Like, if that trade had happened, I would have had a hard time being like, is that the person who's going to help you in closing time? Like, and, and these are the sound bites we have to go off as. But it's kind of like what we said before. So, um, and, and that general way, like, I think I would have understood it a little bit more a year ago than I do now. And in part because, too, and again, not identical players, but how we knew that that Carlisle used Sabonis for a big chunk of this season Particularly in the half court, makes it even more puzzling to me how they would have used Ben Simmons.
0: Exactly, like okay, so he's just going to be in the dunker spot all the time, which they really haven't used that much uh, until recently. I feel like, um, or are you going to run forty snug pick and rolls for him a game? Like it's because all, all I can picture is like uh, even watching like our, I was watching the Cavs game last night. Like every time R.J. Barrett runs a ball screen, that's not off of an uh, like an away or just some kind of. Uh, action to get him off moving off ball into a ball screen like it's an automatic under like and i just picture that with ben simmons i'm like okay so you have this guy who's a big ball handler but if you're not like i don't know like there well, obviously no. we've talked about it. There's, there's, yeah, there's i mean yeah 100 percent because
2: we can we can poke fun at screen assists and there's plenty of reason to poke fun at screen assists because you know if you set more screens you're going to have more opportunity to get them kind of like if you make more passes you're going to have more opportunity to get it and they're mm-hmm. You know, same thing with passing the ball. If you pass to an off ball cutter, that's not requiring as much skill as like, you know, manipulating the pick and roll and needing to use deception or hesitations to actually shift pieces on the floor. It's somewhat the same with screening, but like, if you know that you're going to have this big point guard, who's going to be, who's going to be seeing unders all the time. First of all, there's a reason why Philadelphia didn't run that much pick and roll. Mm -hmm. And Rick Carlisle likes to run a lot of pick and roll like you're going to need a screener who's going to be able to handle that and to run snug isn't just about ben like you also have to have a physical screener to be able to handle doing that which is in some ways where i i might have if they had any semblance of shooting been able to spin my head around as strange as it seems the idea of ben and sabonis more so than ben and miles it's just like i was just having a hard time with that general fit but obviously you know the pacers seem to by reports that we've heard have talked about Karis, Sabonis, Brogdon, TJ Warren, everybody they could have with that. So uh, apparently Daryl Morey was just unmoved in the end. But I think that this does close out that particular segment for good. And you
0: Hopefully. know what? I am I am perfectly okay with that. And it's just sad too. Like as a as a final note, I love watching Ben Simmons play basketball. Oh, no, he's a very good player. But like Jesus Christ. If I never have to talk about Ben Simmons again, it's a it's a good it's a good day. Um, so I'm very excited to move past uh Simmons corner. Um, where do you want to go next?
2: Let's let's talk about last night's game a little bit. How about how about we talk about some actual basketball?
0: That sounds pretty good to me. Um, so yeah, last night was certainly a game. Uh it never felt as close as the final score ended up being, in my opinion. I think what did the Pacers give up and p- paints in the point in the first half? Like 45? It like for the close game,
2: I, I was in the middle of tossing around something I might want to write just from a moment from that game. And when I looked at, at ESPN.com's box score this morning, I the New Orleans scored 117 points and the Pacers gave up 93 either at the at the free throw line or in the paint. So yeah. there was a lot Pretty of paint ugly. points scored.
0: <laughs> Jonas Valanciunas was may as well have been a freaking bulldozer yesterday because he was just, I mean, that was, that was certainly a showing. Um, and then we all, I mean, well, I guess we can talk about, um, let, let's talk about Gogan and Ajax on defense first. Um, I think, you know, I wrote about it in, in my article talking about Ajax too uh, the other day, like as much as the flashes have been really cool and you can see the, the things that make him a really intriguing prospect, like even like he threw the shovel pass yesterday, just kind of like out of nowhere, like he just did it as part of the offense, that's the stuff I see where I'm like, okay, he's doing like he's quickly making decisions. He's trying to fill in the offense, but he also just has no idea where to be on either end right now. Like that's going to take time. He needs to develop that. Um, and you saw that defensively yesterday. Um, he is jumping at everything right now. Like he is, yeah. if, if you had to take top five players in the NBA and jumps per 75, Isaiah Jackson has ascended up the list very quickly. Um, I mean, where, where do you want to start at with him on there?
2: Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely didn't see any pump fakes. He didn't like yesterday. (laughs) He was going to bite on a pump fake, but, um, what we've seen, I mean, even going back to when we talked about after the Laker game is as they pretty much need to switch with him right now in his Mm -hmm. minutes, like they're doing very switch heavy lineups, which, um, when they played Phoenix, he picked up, I think two or three fouls trying to switch out where he got handsy with guards. Um, where it, it, he just needs to let his feet do the work. Cause he, I mean, he moves so well out on the perimeter that, it, that he could tone some of that back. But also just being a little bit more watertight with it. Like there was a pretty egregious moment in that Suns game where he switched out to Alfred Payton and there wasn't really communication. So he and Lance both ended up on the ball. And then Alfred Payton passed out to Biombo, who like turned into Jokic on the short roll, finding guys in the corners. And You know, it's just hilarious. Like we don't ever need, I looked it up afterwards on synergy and the whole year Alfred Payton has been trapped once. And I'm thinking it was that possession. Like it had to have been. So um, you don't really need those types of moments, but just looking at the Pelicans game in and of itself, like that's why it showed up of why they're needing to switch with him, even though it's also like a good tool for them to have, or a good lineup wrinkle, because when he was in drop, he was, and it's not just about the big because obviously you need to have weak side tagging that wasn't necessarily going on either, but he was he was caught in the in-between zone on a number of those plays and didn't quite seem where he seemed like he knew where he needed to be. And obviously just picking up he and Goga picking up fouls. But I kind of like you know, he's so, he's only 20 years old. He, this is the first several games that he's played. He still needs to learn that defensively in terms of to what angles he was at at times where it made it easy for the ball handler to go at him. And it wasn't just about, you know, the rim protection problem because they were having problems staying in front of anybody, let alone their transition defense where guys were just, you know, getting run out after run out because they weren't getting back or they weren't communicating. Like there was a number of reasons why they were giving up a plethora of point paints, our paint points, but like I was, I'm a little bit more low on Goga, to be honest. I don't. Yeah. And because Goga's had more time and I do, I understand that he's had Nate McMillan, Nate Bjorkman, and Rick Carlisle now all, which are different schemes. And if we really want to talk about this season, It's not the same as Nate Bjorken, who really just wanted to be disorienting with how many types of defense he was running. It just feels like right now, if you look at the difference between Miles, Sabonis, Goga, Ijax, all four of those guys need to run a different type of pick and roll coverage. And it feels like that's creating confusion for the rest of the players on the floor at times. Like they needed to be able, I mean, and you and I talked about it over the summer a lot. Like it's not that you have to have the exact same pick and roll coverage all the time. And certainly when you get in the playoffs, you're going to want to adapt some of that based on opponent. Like what I just said with Alfred Payton, like just because you trap doesn't mean you need to trap Alfred freaking Payton. But um point being is when you're trying to fluctuate between what all these different bigs need to do it seems like it's creating some issues here and there but that said goga hasn't shown a lot of progress on the defensive end in these three years i don't know where you're at with goga Um,
0: his body just moves on different planes right now like you tweeted something about uh his being a little bit confused or perplexed by some of the angles he takes and it's like he just really struggles to bend his lower body, it feels like, or it, may, it maybe there's just no process to make it happen. Like, um I, I don't know. It just never feels like, – I, I wouldn't even necessarily say, like, go slow. It's just, like, he doesn't move his body where it needs to go a lot of the times. Like, his angles that he takes in pick-and-roll defense, like, especially yesterday, like
2: – The one where he had his back to the stanchion?
0: Well, yeah. He had, like, a play, I think, in the Phoenix game where he uh, – like. uh it's. I mean, there are some guys who can get, get away with it. Like, Miles can, can turn opposite shoulder and be fine getting back in recovery. Goga is not that guy. Like, Goga cannot turn his back to somebody and pick and roll and get back in time to make that recovery block. Like, um, I think he did that. It was, it was either the Phoenix game or last night, and I, he did that. I was like, oh, no, Goga, this is going nowhere. And it didn't go anywhere. And it's just uh, – I don't – I mean, I agree with you. I think it's partially hard because of how much things have had to change up for him. And i think you know you can make the case like oh well if he just played more the last couple of years um sure but also like it's it's really rough defensively um i don't his timing just hasn't been great either um and i i don't i'm not like out on goga or anything but
2: in no terms i'm of, not completely out yeah. but my i'm willing to sell a little bit of stock on yes. one, the defensive upside because it's, it's what I said. He still needs to master body positioning where he's coming at angles that make it very easy for the guard to go. And then his tendency is always to go back to his own man before he's actually contained. And that happens in the pop. It happens if he hedges. It happens if he's in drop, which was the case last night, where he just wants to go back to his original assignment before he's done anything the ball or he's just backing up in the drop without making impact on either person until he's like clear back out of bounds. So Um, There still needs to be some refinement there. I mean, he has, it's again, it goes back to tools because he has the standing reach. He can do more as a shot blocker. It's just what else he's giving up the rest of the time. And then he wasn't providing a lot of one-on-one resistance because he was picking up, you know, cheap fouls against Jonas Valanciunas. And then also the offensive foul because of what his screening situation still is. So I can see some spots where he's made progress and there should be some reason for optimism. Like when he was in golden state, I thought he made some really good passes out of certain plays. Um, There's moments where he's done a little bit more in the pick and roll. And I think that his overall feel for, like I've said in the past, like generally speaking with handoffs and then if he needs to do like a get action with a guard, um, that's more fluid just by comparison than it was with Miles at the same point in their careers. Um, but some of the other stuff, I mean, even going back to the Clipper game, he didn't really know where he needed to be in 2-3 zone. But then at the end of the game, when they went to one-three-one, and he was supposed to be the backline warrior – I don't know how many times Justin and Sabonis had to tell him to run the baseline, which that's a very grueling thing to know, to do. Like, I don't know if you've ever played one, three, one defense, let alone the back spot, but that is very hard. So again, I, I would have understood if he was, if he was executing the responsibility and he couldn't get out to Batum in the corners, I would have understood it because running, both sides in that type of scheme is hard. And to be quite frank, the Pacers haven't been great at one three, one and other games this season either, even when Goga wasn't playing, but the fact that he had to keep being told is more so kind of the problem. And again, he's young, there's time to work on some of this stuff. And there's always seemed like there's a roadblock for him where that, whether it's, you know, visa issues with the first time he could have been at summer league or, you know, this summer, you know, unfortunately for him having to deal with some personal family issues where he couldn't be at summer league or maybe some more of that type of teaching could go on. But um, also, I kind of wanted to get your reaction to, you know, you never want to be like body language police, but that guy is expressing a lot of emotion on the court. So, like, what's your reaction to that?
0: He does. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, him and, and, and Gary Payton, the second had a had a fun little spat against Golden State, too, and. Um, I know just from some of my friends who scouted him when he was playing in the early, he's a very emo, emo, emotional player and he's toned down some in the NBA, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of shoulder shrugging going on from him <laughs> during a game. Um, if, if like, I, I don't know, normally if I'm trying to see if, uh, if I'm trying to guess whether or not something was, uh, was miscommunicated, I can look at Gogan and see, is he doing like the, is he doing like the pointing at the ground thing? Like the, is, you, you know, exactly what I'm talking about too, because he yes. does a lot of that. Um, but yes, the, uh. I, I have certainly noticed that. I think him and Karis are probably up top for the the body language uh, guys. Yeah, on
2: because, like, when I watched him play some Euroleague games after the Pacers drafted him, like, yeah, the fiery stuff was there. Like, you know, the stuff, Greg Foster, the Gary Payton, the second stuff like that, that you could see. But I tweeted, like, it was, it was a joke, but, like, I tweeted comparing it. I was like – you know, Goga's reaction to all these plays on defense is the same as me when I go to my fridge and my box of outshine popsicles. Is <laughs> yeah. Because like, it was so like slumpy at spots. And that's fine. Like, I guess I care that he cares that, you know, they made a mistake or the opponent scored, but it's different to be doing that when the ball goes through the rim and, you know, you can head to the other end versus him doing it like after a turnover on the roll or when yep. Bionbo gets an offensive rebound, like you have to keep playing. You can't, like, take the time out to, you know, mourn the loss of, of the the role possession. So I think some of that he's going to have to to tone down a little bit. But um, yeah. what was your impression, too, at halftime when neither of them started the second half?
0: It was weird. And it also clearly did not work. Uh, believe it or not, O'Shea Brissett, as we've talked about on here many times, uh, he cannot guard fours straight up in the post. Asking him to guard uh, Jonas Valanciunas, and uh, granted, it wasn't one on one; like they were bringing help immediately. Um, still asking a lot of Oshae Brissett. Um, so I I thought it was weird too, because I mean, both Ijax and Goga had fouls, but not enough where I thought one of them shouldn't be playing. Um, so I was very confused by that and wasn't really entirely sure what to make of it, especially because we just. Like, we haven't seen – but I mean, I'll look up the possession stats for now, but I don't think O'Shea's played him, like, five minutes at the five this year.
2: He played some at the five in one of these other road games briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it kind of came of a place – like, I mean, I tweeted it at halftime with what their numbers were and that the two of them were having so many problems defensively. And also, mm-hmm. like, there was just kind of a lack of focus from Goga for the first, like, two minutes of the game. That, yeah, as you say, like nothing they tried worked. (laughs) Like, let's just, let's just be honest going, going small. I think the thought process behind that wasn't even so much an indictment of them as it was, let's go small and switch because we also like nobody's containing on the perimeter. So if we just go to switching and we have some of our best defenders out there, hopefully we can sit down in a stance and maybe get some of that, you know, rim deterrence more than rim protection, I think they played like 15 minutes without a center on the floor and, and they did not, they did not win those minutes last night.
0: Unsurprisingly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Unsurprisingly. But I mean, some of it too, with the Valanciunas stuff was like Torrey Craig was battling, like when he had to front Valanciunas, he was, he was really going after it, but their rotations around it and the people recognizing when they were going to double and then making, you know, keeping those rotations in front and going around when, especially when they were doubling from the, The post entry passer were not very good. And then also covering up the high low pass, which is something I might write about, because there was one really good play from Chris Duarte in that regard that I think continues to show like his overall just how instinctual he is as a player. But um, I think my thought process was on the one hand, like this is opportunity for the two of them to be getting minutes while Miles and Sabonis are out. And we don't know how long that's going to be or if there's going to be a move of one of them to open up playing time. So it was a missed opportunity that they didn't keep playing. But then what's the other side of that coin where you also want those guys to be earning minutes? Like if you're just giving it to them, like, are they going to be and I'm not necessarily saying that either one of them has this type of attitude. So I hope people don't take it the wrong way, but like if you're just giving it to them, maybe they're not going to work as hard to improve some of those areas that they need to versus, Hey, you know, we didn't start the second half and maybe when I come in, I'm going to be, you know, more focused on whatever coaching points were given to me at halftime.
0: No, I mean, that's a really good point. Um, and I think it's tough too, because I've never have thought that Goga's issue is effort and I don't, you're not making yeah. that point either. It's just, um, I think some people, Maybe think that or see that when he's on court. I think part of it's just activity, like you're mentioning with, um with uh you know how he'll get so frustrated in the middle of the play that he takes himself out of it. Like that's part of the issue with him right now. Like he's very segmented in how he sees the game. And same thing with Ajax. Like it's uh, it possession doesn't mean like you know a, a change in the possession doesn't necessarily mean that that there's a change. There should be a change in activity. Like even with Ajax, like I pointed something out about his ground coverage and in a clip that I put in. And it's like you can see him very clearly, like as he reacts to things as they happen. And I think it's the same thing with Goga. Like um, he's not—he's thinking so hard about what's happening right in front of him that he's not like able to focus on the other things that are happening. It almost seems like, if that makes
2: sense. Yeah, I think with Isaiah, some of it's just you know two that he's playing with completely kind of different teammates, even than what mm-hmm. was available when he was playing during preseason when he would have been out there you know he was playing minutes with Sabonis when he was at the 4 now when he's been playing in these minutes he's at the 5 um and you know there's there's and I, this is not meant to be a downgrade to these guys at all but there's there's G League players out there with him that he might not have been playing regular minutes with so uh just working off of that but he doesn't seem entirely sure like you said of where yeah. he needs to be in general like he's having to get a lot of direction there was one possession that Justin had to almost completely orchestrate where it was kind of like uh, cut and replace play. And then he was having to do something off the dribble, which isn't necessarily ideal, but, um, I'm not down on Ijax. I don't want people to think that like, I like his potential. I like things that I've seen him do on both ends of the floor. It's just like I said, it's, it's somewhat unfortunate for him that, that the season has been what it is and that he had the knee injury early. Cause my guess is that early in the season, the Pacers would have you know, had him play more frequently with the Mad Ants. And then maybe now for this opportunity, he would have been a little bit more ready than what we've seen, but even through that, like, you know, just watching, you know, the vertical gravity that he adds and seeing people being able to throw actual alley-oop passes, like not just from the assignment standpoint, but like he's been pretty fluid with that going off of two feet and other stuff that um, you definitely want to see more from him.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, off of that, I I was trying – I literally – I think I spent like a good 40 minutes on this going back through the last 20 seasons of Pacers basketball. Uh, Isaiah Jackson is the best – or should I just say first real, like legitimate loud threat the Pacers have had since who? Because even though Miles had like 120 dunks, I think his second year in the league, second or third year, he was never really – like, I mean, he's – he needs to gather. Like he's not really like a just jump straight forward kind of guy who can who can who like he's run lob plays, but like you know what I mean. Like he Isaiah is somebody already showing like you cannot like leave him on guard because he's got that kind of gravity already as a lob threat.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to think who that would have even been because there was several years ago where I talked about um Aaron Holiday had kind of like as as many warts as Aaron Holiday had with some of his playmaking. He could throw like a fake floater he was a nice pass. Lobber. Yeah, he could do that. And uh, I looked at the numbers of how many alley passes the Pacers had thrown that year, and it was like less than ten. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, I mean, genuinely. Shout I, out I'm to true. the.
0: Dude, uh, sorry, I almost clipped this earlier today. Lance threw a lob to Tori craig that was like i have no idea what the hell yeah, he was
2: thinking. yeah. it
0: was a the accuracy on the pass was terrible b Tori was in no way shape or form even capable of getting that pass it was watching lance is just uh, it's an experience uh, in its own right but sorry It continue. definitely
2: is but i'm trying to guess through this like last year there's probably a case that the person who caught the most lobs might have been brima like it genuinely yeah. might have and that was probably like three lobs <laughs> I don't know. if that yeah but um i mean who would it have been i'm trying to think of people in the past who would have run so, and caught lobs like are we talking like clear back to jeff Pendergraf? like i went what are we dealing with here and i think
0: the closest i got to like the to, to current day and i was like
2: gerald green
0: i i think i put josh McRoberts. i think josh mcgroberts was maybe like the closest because he had like shout out to the 2005 all-american dunk contest uh Josh McRoberts, I believe, won or no, he he lost the he lost Gerald Green, um, because Gerald Green was in the same one, but, um, I think it might have been Josh McRoberts because it, it, I mean, it's close, like it's it's either Josh McRoberts or you're going back to defender graph, so it's like, yeah, it's been a minute, so it's it's just very cool to see that element and how much guys are already starting to factor it in because even like you've seen them get more comfortable with it, like they had, I mean, they threw like three or four lobs for him yesterday. In the Suns game, he got it repeatedly, um, so it's been cool to see that aspect for sure.
2: Also, some two other things that emerged from that Pelicans game. First of all, there's a shooter on the roster. Dwayne Washington Jr. made seven threes in a game.
0: <laughs> well, you know, he's a shooter now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I actually. So it's kind of funny. I don't. I don't remember if I told you this as my comparison for Dwayne. I have enjoyed watching Dwayne play because, like, he is pretty good at tagging. Like he'll actually do it, which is cool to see. Um, he he plays really hard, which I appreciate. Like I think he's trying very hard to make the can
2: I just pause and say how low the bar is that you're like, well, he'll okay, well, do I'm it? just
0: saying the other guy who we've watched start at the two guard for the entire season has tagged like single digit times on my hand. So I I'm sorry, I had to point it out. I, that's, just, that's just where I was at. The first or second game I watched Dwayne Dwayne start, I was like, Holy shit, he just tagged weak side. And I was like, Wow, well, this is where we're at. Um, but he reminds me so much of watching like Antoine Walker play. Um, everything looks so picturesque and beautiful when he's doing it. And then it like hits two feet to the right on the backboard when it goes up, like uh, his foot works really good. I love how he gets to his spots, but the shot just never falls until finally yesterday, five, what, what did he end up? Seven threes.
2: Yeah. He made seven threes and, uh, after the game, I was like, wow, they have they might have somebody who could develop as an extra shooter. And then like you looked and and obviously like the Pelicans were in an epic battle not to make threes. Like there was yeah. a point where Dwayne Washington Jr. had made more threes than their whole team had, which I mean, says a lot that the Pacers still lost that game. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean it, it was nice to see at least somebody heating up and, and hitting those because he hit him in a lot of different variety of ways. I mean, and credit to Lance on a few of them because he threw the cross court dart to to Dwayne in the corner and then seemed to try to stay cognizant of like, hey, that guy has the hot hand and you know I'm gonna call for Jeremy to set, you know, the unscripted flare to get get him open again and make that play. But um, the other thing that I wanted to go from with that was, you know, Lance was running backup point, Karras was running, you know. Mainly primary with the starters, no Kiefer.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you that too. It really bummed me out. The entire game, I'm just like, where's Kiefer? Where's Kiefer? Especially after, like, what does this guy have to do to earn a rotation spot? Like, he was so good in that Warriors game. Like, I know he is not perfect, and he has limitations for sure. Um, Like, he's not going to be able to run pick and rolls or um, get the same kind of downhill gravity that somebody like Karras can uh same to it. Like he's not gonna be able to get a shot off like Dwayne can. But I mean the man full court press Stephen Curry for an entire game. It was like pretty good at it. Like I and I mean it takes heat check threes and one ends up going in in overtime. Like it just or not overtime. What am I talking about? Um
2: yeah, I think yeah. It, it was
0: it overtime. Yeah,
2: it was it overtime. It was
0: overtime. Uh like I don't know it. I just like, I love watching him play. So I'm biased because of that. And this season, this has been, but I generally think they play pretty well when he's out there. I mean, what have you, where are you at with it? Cause I, especially too, like, I mean, I guess you can make part of the case too. Like he, he plays really well with Delmas because of his off ball movement. Like he's one of the better off ball movers on the team right now. Um, So, I mean, like Domas isn't playing the last couple of games, but he didn't, yeah, I don't know where are you are. I think,
2: I mean, in the Golden State game, he struggled up until the end when he got hot and started mm-hmm. making some of those plays. Like, I agree that he tried to stay attached to Steph, and in most games, because he gives up size, he does a lot of face guarding and really has to battle. Mm-hmm. And I give him credit for how much he, you know, scraps and claws to make up for that difference. And Phoenix, um, I thought his playmaking could have been, you know, they needed a little bit more in that regard in some moments. Like I clipped the play and it wasn't even, I mean, it was more so a compliment for the Suns because I think it's so funny because every team uses the exact same hand signal for stack. And half the time you can see like, Oh, I'm the guard I've called stack. And now the big from the other team has told them all that we're running stack. So like he tried to reject it. And he just doesn't quite have the burst to be able to beat that type of switch and then make the correct play out of it. So I, I can kind of understand that, and you know, maybe I don't really like the lens that I'm watching basketball through a lot of the time this year because I don't like some of the questions that I ask myself during a lot of these games because I was sitting there while I was watching it, and I, I had to remind myself, I'm like, at halftime, I'm like, wow, Kiefer didn't even play yet. And then, you know, you can look at matchups and see that, that especially because of how the bigs were playing, they wanted to be switching, which would be easier with having – you know, bigger guards and wings on the floor. So I can kind of excuse it to an extent, but then I just, you know, Lance signed another 10 day deal and they haven't signed him fully for the rest of the year. And Karis comes off the really good game against the Lakers where he has the 22 point fourth quarter and then has the calf injury. And now he's back to playing and it just, it kind of makes me question things and I'm not accusing anybody of anything. It's just that like you know, maybe you wanted to get more of a look at you know what Lance is gonna do at backup point guard because you want to make a decision there. And then also, like, is this somewhat showcasing Karras because if he has the ball in his hands more, he's more effective. So we're gonna let him run as much primary as possible. Like, do you kind of get what I'm saying? Yeah, like there's there's been a lot of games where I've asked this, like, even at the end, I mean, you and I talked about the merits to having Jeremy in, especially since LeBron didn't felt no need to call his man up for screens and hunt him at all in the fourth quarter against LA. But there have been rumors that the Lakers might be interested in Jeremy Lamb. And there was Jeremy Lamb in the closing lineup. Like, or sometimes you look at certain opponents where one or the other big has been mentioned heavily and something that stood out to me a lot. And again, I I can look for basketball reasons and see some of what these decisions would be. But like, even going back to the game, they played against the wizards when they won, like there had been so much kind of like tug and war, and I'm not saying that they were like literally butting heads or weren't getting along, but like you and I had pointed out, other people had pointed out like what Sabonis's role was that it seemed like Rick Carlisle wanted to be doing, you know, a far more perimeter oriented offense where Sabonis would be better suited doing more, uh, you know, stuff at the elbows, initiating offense in that way, more triangle, more split cuts, and they play the wizards and they do like all of that. Like And and it makes sense. And he's getting possessions on the roll. And and, and afterwards, Sabonis is like, oh, we worked on pocket passes at practice. He's getting a lot more post touches than he had got all season. And now this week, we're hearing that like Bradley Beal, there's reports from DC that like Bradley Beal had kind of um, given them the green light of, hey, like if you can get Sabonis, make an offer. Um, and then you see some of it against the Knicks too, like the night before that athletic article came out, like they're running the first plays of the game for miles Turner and they're, they're doing a lot more with him as the screener in that game. And we know there's been connections with the Knicks. So like, I'm not saying that's all of it. And again, I can point to basketball reasons, but the season has been so weird that I don't like that during games. I ask myself like, Oh, well, what would the reason be for this guy playing and not that guy? And for what role they're doing? Like, do you see any of that?
0: No, I totally see that. Like it, I mean, and we've talked about it too. Like it, just uh, as we've talked about all season, the team, just, like it, it's always felt like the team is trying to, uh, to, to both figure out who they are while still trying to highlight every single player in a way that makes them, uh, uh, what is the way to put it? It makes them like attractive to another team. Um, it's weird. Like it's just it's so odd to watch. Like I'm just like. It's uh, it's like the opposite of re- running an amoeba, de- an amoeba defense. Like, we have an amoeba offense. We'll just do a, we'll, we'll adapt to whatever situation is possible, even though we don't have the capability to actually do it. And, um, I I don't know, like I like exactly like you're talking about with Lance. Like, okay, you just signed Kiefer for the rest of the year. Like, play him. I don't know. Like, I it's just, just like, and I'm not saying that you can't play Lance either, but it's just like I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's Part of this is why I just, like, I've so much more enjoyed the last couple games. Like, and, and this sounds terrible. Like, I mean this um not as anything against against Karis, but, like, as soon as I saw yesterday that Karis was back, I'm like, good for him. But I'm, like, less interested to watch this game now. Like, I was excited. I was like, okay, cool. I can watch Kiefer and Ijax and, and Chris and, like, the young guys play because that's the – I at least feel like I'm watching, like, basketball that is not that – this sounds so bad. Like I don't even mean that it's bad to watch Karis play. I love watching Karis play, honestly. Like he's a very fun player, but it just the vibe of the team is so different when the starters don't play, and it's so painfully obvious. It just. Uh... I mean,
2: I did think they had that sweet spot when, and I hate to refer to it that way, but when they <laughs> yeah. were when they were heavily.